0: Good evening, Um, tonight we are going to start what is a journey through the book of Genesis and um, I think it would be really good to kind of talk about what we're going to do in this class for the next few weeks and months, hopefully, and tonight we'll hopefully get to reading a few chapters in Genesis. I think the way that this is going to work is, you know, kind of the formats every week I have the class participants read um, a chapter out of the book, uh, a book of the Bible, Um, For this class, you know, typically I go one or two chapters a week. We may try and do more than that. We'll just see how it goes. It's organic, so I don't want to force it. And, you know, we're just doing all this reading. And um, I want you to get something out of it. So we'll see how it goes tonight. But we'll try and do a few chapters a week. I may skip a few chapters here and there. Genesis is very complex. And there's a lot to it. It could easily be kind of a two-semester class. But we'll just see how it goes. Um, What I do want to do is talk about kind of... Um, Before we get into the book, it would be really good to talk about why you're here, why I'm here, what we're going to do, and and kind of just take a huge step back about the Word of God. Because I think that's why we're all here. It's what I'm doing. Uh, I'm by no means an expert. Uh, I learn from others, and they learn from me, and that's how this goes. But I think it would be really good to kind of talk about what is it that we're actually going to study So, I'm going to start tonight with the Bible. I don't call it the Bible, it is the Bible, but I'm going to call it the Word of God because that's what we're really talking about here. What is the Word of God? Why is it important? And why should you care? I've talked a little bit about this in my intro to the Bible class And I think, Mike, you're probably the only one in this room who hasn't been to that yet This is a one-time class I offer probably every quarter here at the church Where I, I, for an hour, talk about the Bible What is it? How is it written? Why is it important? We talk about resources that you can get, study Bibles, extra texts and that kind of thing So I won't go into a huge amount of that tonight But I will start with the very basics. The Word of God is why we're here. What is it? The Word of God is essentially God's truth, God's knowledge that he imparts on us as human beings to understand him, to understand ourselves, and to understand our place in the world and and why we're here and why he created us. And it answers all of those big questions that all of us have. Where did I come from? Where am I going? Why is there suffering in the world? Who is Jesus? Who is God? Why does the world even exist? I like to kind of always start with a class like this by saying, when I say the Word of God, the number one thing I'm saying is this idea that is, and don't worry, I don't get too egghead in my classes. I do kind of say some big words from time to time. This might be one of those weird, kind of eggheady kind of conversations, but this is really important. <clears throat> And it gets to translations and that kind of thing. We start with what I call the conceptual word of God. What do I mean by that? These are ideas. It's knowledge. It's insight. It's wisdom that God has, through supernatural means of the Holy Spirit, revealed himself to mankind. Now, over time, we, as humans have written that word down, into the written word. Trust me, this makes this is important. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's not going to be a class on English or anything like that. But it's important. And this is, you know, obviously writing. What's important here is that you understand that the word of God is powerful. It is meant to be conveyed. God's truth is meant to be conveyed to us as humans so that we can absorb it and do something with it. What is it that we are doing as human beings? The word of God, the, the sole purpose, is to make us better disciples of Jesus. make us better disciples of Jesus. If you call yourself a Christian, and you say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God that he is God incarnate on this earth and I have a relationship with him because I believe that Jesus has essentially paid the price for my sin that I repent from, then I can live in eternity with my creator because I now have a reconciled relationship that was broken through my sin and the sin of the whole human race. I can be reconciled to Christ and I can live forever. Once I become a believer in Jesus, I become what we call a disciple, Disciple is a fancy way of saying a student. I'm a student of Jesus. I'm a student of God. I'm going to learn from his word so I can become a better student and I can become stronger. This is why we're here. I talk about this in my my intro to Bible class. There are four pillars of being a disciple and they're all important for tonight. The first, in order to be a disciple, we have to study What we mean here is we need to study the Word of God. You can study it on your own. And reading the Word of God imparts knowledge to you, imparts strength. We'll talk about that in a minute. You can also have people help you explain it. Someone like me who knows the Bible, or Todd, or one of your pastors or or, um, elders. The next thing you do to be a good disciple is to practice. I'm going to talk about this. A super important part of my class is it's not just FYI. This is not the discovery channel where you turn it on and you learn something about the past and you learn something about the scriptures and you learn something about God and then you go about your daily life. Absolutely, the second pillar here that is critical for being a disciple is to practice what you learn. We'll study the word and we'll practice it in our real everyday lives. We will... Um, become disciples, meaning we will um, be students of the Word. Meaning, I will find a mentor who knows what he or she is talking about, and I will learn from them. There is a lot you can learn but by just reading the Bible on your own and communicating with God through prayer. But there is a lot you can learn as well by talking to knowledgeable people like teachers, like myself, So the third and critical part of being a disciple is being a disciple, being a student, and learning from others. The fourth pillar, once you have learned something, and I don't mean you've got a Ph.D. in theology, or that you're a pastor, or that you've been going to church for 10 years. As soon as you understand something about the Word of God, it's time for you to pass that on. So the fourth pillar here is to teach others. You don't have to have a class like this. You can just talk to people. You can have one-on-one fellowship with another human being. You can have small groups. We encourage you, if you're a member of this church, to be in a small group. It's critical. But you need to pass on what you've learned. Uh, We're one generation away from the Bible not being known by anyone on earth. If we don't continue to teach it to others, it will be lost. Okay. Okay. But why study it and what is it? This is super important. The word of God is food. This is scriptural. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you come to me and you, essentially, if you consume my food, you'll never be hungry again. What is he talking about there? And it's kind of related to what we do at communion. It's, It's figurative. Communion is a bit figurative when he says, this is my body, take and eat it. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink it. What he's telling us is, the word of God is spiritual food. What I like to kind of compare the spiritual food of the Bible with is the physical food you eat to sustain yourself. We have a physician in the room. He could probably very well explain to us, How food nourishes you, but you can understand this. If you ate a piece of toast once a day or once a week, just kind of in passing, and and you took 10 seconds to eat it, could you survive? Of course not. Not long, not long. You need to eat real food, regularly, healthy food, every day, three times a day, square meals a day, and you need to do that every day because that sustains you. It helps you to grow. It helps you become strong. The Word of God is exactly the same, but it is spiritual food. We have to consume the Word that God gives us for us to be spiritually alive and spiritually strong and spiritually grow. It gets back to what we're talking about here with discipleship. If I don't consume spiritual food regularly and I don't consume the right food, I'm going to die. But this is a far worse death because here we're talking a spiritual death. And I say, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you are going to live forever, but you will live a very weak existence, and you will be susceptible to Satan, to lies, to twisting of truth, and you will never grow. You will never grow to be a strong disciple, and you will certainly not be able to help others grow in their discipleship. So the kind of the one thing I really want us to get out of this class is to be able to start consuming our spiritual food regularly. I tell people, start small. Pick a time of day. That's the time of day you always read your Bible. And I tell people, people come and say, well, it's hard to read. I don't understand what it means. Yeah, that's why we have a class like this, so that we can help explain to you the hard stuff. But the spiritual food is so good... You can consume any of it. There's no bad spiritual food. This is not a giant fried donut. (laughs) Or, uh, you know, uh, this is not your third funnel cake at the Iowa State Fair. This every bit of the food within these pages is great for you. There's no way you can read something and not get healthy from it. So I encourage people to read something. Read something every day. Something that excites you, interests you. And soon you will start to feel that spiritual nourishment. Fill your body, fill your mind, fill your soul. And then the hard stuff that you don't understand, that's why we have a class like this. We can help to kind of explain some of it. Regular consumption. What is it? The Word of God that we call the Bible or Holy Bible... Very simply, I don't have my tea, so this is, I, you know, I drink like gallons of tea. This is the word of God conceptual that has been put down into writing by human beings. Very, very briefly, God created the world. We'll read about that tonight he revealed himself to Adam and Eve, the first humans that he created. Then he started to reveal himself to a group of people on this earth that we call the Hebrews or the Jews. To them, he revealed the word through direct, um, how do we say this, voice. The voice of God spoke to human beings. And human beings received that revelation direct from God. It continued. Humans continued to receive the word of God directly from God himself. They also started to tell each other about it. We call this the oral history of the Bible or the verbal history. It started to get passed down as stories. So people would be around the campfire at night and their parents would tell them the word of God through story, song. We'll get to this in a minute. Poetry and that kind of thing. At some point, and this is important to remember, you are all very blessed in the United States, 95%, probably more than that, of the U.S. population can read and write. Maybe not English, maybe it's another language, but they have some ability to read and write. That is vastly different than the human condition of the past, only up until the 18th and 19th centuries in the West did most human beings learn to read and write. Until then, it was the domain of a very select group of wealthy aristocrats, often priests in society, who learned how to read and write. But even thousands of years ago, there were a few of them around, and they started to write it down. So humans started writing down the word this changed the world because now instead of me having to rely on my parents my grandparents the elders of the community to verbally tell me the word of god if i could read i could now store that information in written form and then read it to others. Often you would read it out loud to people who couldn't read and write, but they could hear it. This helped preserve it, to transmit it. Very briefly, this happened, we think, for the Bible we have as Christians and and half for who we call Jews, This happened over a period of many years. We think probably at least 1,500 years of time passed from the time the first word of God was written, probably before Moses, scraps, pieces were being written down, until the first century, probably close to the very end of the first century AD, probably by John the Apostle was the concluding writings of what we call the Old and New Testaments of the Christian Bible. So we're talking at least a 1,500-year span. The people who wrote those scriptures down, revelation, communication with other people, they wrote it down into writing. They wrote it in their language that they knew. And the languages of the Old and New Testament are primarily, and we won't talk much more about this tonight, but Hebrew, what we call Aramaic, and finally Greek in the New Testament. The original writings, the first time pen to paper, essentially, or read to papyrus, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Now, tonight, we are not reading any of those languages in here. I am a Greek scholar, I know very little Hebrew. I don't know very much Aramaic at all either, <clears throat> just what is actually quoted in the New Testament. Over time, because we want to spread the gospel to all the ends of the earth, this is primarily Christians are responsible for this. Um, there was an attempt by Jews in the third century BC to convert the Hebrew and Aramaic of the Old Testament into Greek because they didn't know it anymore, they only knew Greek. The vast majority of translations have happened because of Christian evangelism in this world, and those were translated into many other languages. So today we'll be reading English. My only comment about this is, I have been a biblical scholar for decades. I have learned from many, many, many smart people. I can say with 100% confidence, although we have translations of the original language here tonight, they're accurate. They're trustworthy. You can trust them. We'll read them tonight out loud. Yes, knowing the original languages and what we think are the original scripts that were written can help fill the nuance in. That's why I study Greek. But the core concepts of who God is, why we exist, who we are, our relationship to Him and, and to each other, they have been preserved and we can trust them. So, this is trustworthy. You may have an NIV. You may have an ESV. In English, probably more translations and different kinds of flavors of translations. Remember, there's no way to copy one language into another. It's not a computer code. So it's different. There's, it's, a, it's like going from chocolate to vanilla, but still ice cream. Most of the English translations that we have, I feel are very trustworthy. If you want to know more about that and the ones I don't think are so, you can come to my class uh, in, a, in about a month and we can talk about it. Okay, I'll stop there. We haven't gotten into Genesis yet, but I like to kind of cover this very basic material first. And, he, and again, this is, this is always open. It's not a lecture. I like discussion. I won't necessarily call on you, but if you want to say anything, it's a safe space too. And whenever we discuss anything sensitive, I take it out of the podcast. So any questions, comments? Okay. Okay. I'll I'll just keep going. My dry mouth, cut mouth. I need an eraser. Actually, I don't know. Ah, thank you. All right. So let's just do this. I'm used to a Well, I I don't do YouTube anymore, Um, and these are my notes. So, um, if you want to, you can. It's totally, you know. Okay. I just want to make sure if you need it that you can you can get it. So. I love that. I love that, and I and that's awesome. That's that, is, and I love that, Craig, because that's. I feel like that's the point of Genesis chapter one. Like, I love that the Bible exists, but the first couple of chapters kind of explain that. They set the stage for who is God and its transmission. You're right, a hundred percent is supernatural. And you have to accept that. You have to accept there's much we don't understand about how it works, but that it does. Now, maybe it's another good thing to say here, too. It's not... Two things. The collection of scriptures that we have, that the vast majority of what I would consider real Christians, this is authoritative. It doesn't mean that other revelation isn't authoritative. This is important. If the Holy Spirit reveals something to you, Mike, or to me, Brian, it may not necessarily say word for word what God is revealing to us here, but that doesn't mean that what he's telling you isn't authoritative too. Remember, personal revelation is one of the most important aspects of God's relationship with man and woman. He he has a relationship with groups, but he has a relationship with individuals. The important part that we as Christians hold to is that anything that we we get revealed to us through personal revelation from God, we have to compare it against what we consider to be authoritative. So I have an NIV, Christian Holy Bible here. If I receive a revelation I have to compare what it says with this. Now, if it contradicts it, I have to reject whatever that revelation is. And let's be honest, we could be thinking it. It could be demonic spiritual influence. It could be twisting of the word of God. We know we know Satan does that. So this is always our fallback, and that's why I say it's not wrong to read Billy Graham or C.S. Lewis or or um, you know you know Todd. I mean, you know, when he gives his sermons, it's based on Scripture, but he gives you the Todd talk. But as long as it is reconciled with the Word of God, then we can trust that if it contradicts it, we have to reject it. So this is, like the, this is like the court of law, if you want to think of it here. We put everything to the test of the authoritative scriptures. And again, we can talk more about what it means to be authoritative in my, in my other class. But. So thanks for, for sharing that. Okay. Yes, we will get to that. I'm gonna. I'm. Yes, we will talk about the history of Genesis before we even get there. I'm going to address what is the elephant in the room for the vast majority of, probably especially evangelical Christians. I'm going to talk about the genres of the Bible. Now, don't go to sleep. This is important. Of, and I'm going to call it the Bible here because you know the Word of God. Conceptually, is expressed through what we call the Bible, the r- collection of writings, authoritative writings that we call the Bible. This is actually really important. God is amazing and wondrous and fantastic, and he has given human beings the ability to communicate in different ways. The Bible is absolutely full of almost every kind of written genre literary genre that human beings have used it contains poetry it contains song <coughs> it contains parable it contains metaphor it contains allegory and yes it contains and I'll misspell this literal is it two, what, two T's? nope that's two T's literal accounts meaning historical accounts okay now as a christian you know this if you've ever been in church you know this if anyone's ever read the bible to you you've sung a psalm or a hymn or a or a worship song you know this you can crack open the book to something like the song of solomon okay the bible is absolutely full Of different kinds of literary genre. Why? Because part of it is, this is how it was transmitted. This is kind of gets at Genesis. Before it was written down, how is it that people accurately told someone else the word of God? Well, the best way is to set it to song and have it rhyme. So much of the, especially the Old Testament, you can find in the Hebrew has rhythm and rhyme to it. And, and how many songs? 150 authoritative songs. They're all songs. They're meant to be sung. Because that you memorize things better that way. If it rhymes and has rhythm and pattern you can memorize it. But that just shows you God is infinite in his ability to communicate with others and all of these communicate a different thing to different people for different reasons. The most important thing to remember is that The entire Bible is true. And this is scriptural. Psalm 18, God's way is perfect. All of the Lord's promises prove true. Everything that we have in the authoritative Holy Bible as a Christian, Old and New Testaments, is true. When I say true... I mean exactly what I mean. It's true. Poetry is truth. Parable is truth. Remember, 95%, north of 95% of everything Jesus said to his disciples was what? A parable. parable. What's a parable? A story. It's a story that what? It has like a,
1: another meaning.
0: Or it has like yeah. a deeper meaning. Yes. It's a story that's relatable. It's figurative, okay? And I I think this is the word I'm getting at. And I say everything figurative has a kernel of literal truth in it, but it's figurative in a way that can communicate across barriers, gender barriers, cultural barriers, um, time and space, generational barriers, he said this because he knew his words would be written down and for thousands of years people would be explaining it. But it's hard when you explain something literally to people. As a scientist, a physician, you probably understand if you've ever had to explain, you know, what we know, right? If you have to explain a you know, mechanical thing to somebody, right, it's hard. If they don't have the same background as you, it becomes much harder to explain a technical literal thing to someone. What do you do? You generalize. Or you you make kind of a a bigger comparison. A parable means comparison. You compare what you know to something else that people can understand. God did this for a reason because much of what he says is mysterious and hard to understand. However, there is much literal work in the Bible. Now here's where we kind of fall into a trap and I want to set the stage for this class. It's very important that we say this. Where we get into trouble is where we assume as brilliant theologians, readers of the Bible, that we know for any given passage, oh, that's definitely figurative. Oh, but that passage, that's definitely literal. Are you sure? Some, it's easy. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. If you are a Protestant Christian... You probably think, and and this is what I believe. I believe that's figurative. Okay. When Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, you know, contrary to what you know, some people say he really meant. I believe. I believe that's figurative. He's being figurative to help me understand conceptually what he's saying. Now, those might be things you say are easy to say, and most of us would agree, yes, I think that's figurative, right? Read the Song of Solomon. Read the Psalms. Some of the Psalms, they're very figurative in language. That doesn't mean they're not true. They're absolutely true. Their core meaning is true, and what Jesus or God is trying to tell us is true. It's just wrapped in something that's easier for us to understand. Even Catholics will disagree even with that. If you go to a Catholic, a Catholic, especially priest will say when Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body, a Catholic priest says that is literal. He thinks it's actually his flesh and his blood, his red blood cells that they're consuming. So this is just an example to say, even the passages of the Bible that we think we know are figurative or think we know are literal, we don't even agree on them, most of them. So here's my ground rules for this class. This I highly, highly, I really have to insist here on this, that you accept this, and I hope you do. I think no matter what you believe about a particular passage, you know what I'm talking, I'm talking about Genesis 1 here. No matter what you believe, as a Christian believer, you must be willing to accept that any passage in the Bible could be literal. I have to insist on this. You have to at least be willing to consider when God said he created the earth in six days, he meant six 24-hour human being days. You have to be willing to accept. If Jesus says this is my actual blood, you have to be willing to say, "I am not the smartest being in this universe. (laughs) I could be wrong. I have to accept it's at least possible that he meant his real red blood cells and hemoglobin and Craig can can I don't know this is the (laughs) yellow stuff. If you are willing to accept that, then you. Can be willing, and and I think should be willing, to believe that many passages in the Bible are figurative. If you can accept these two foundations, you're off the hook. You're off the hook. It gives glory and power to God and says, I don't understand how God created the world. I may never understand, even when I go to heaven. Still may be a mystery. But I have to trust him that when he says he created it and it took six days with a seventh day of rest, he told me that for a reason. Now, do I believe it was six 24-hour days? Well, I'm not going to tell you because it doesn't matter because I accept this. I am willing to accept it could be literal, and that so it doesn't matter anymore. This issue has been used so effectively by Satan to divide Christians since the dawn of the scientific revolutions, the dawn of the Enlightenment. Even before that, when people th- think they know how the universe works at a mechanical—I sci- don't call it scientific because it's a process—at a, at a you know, an empirical. Uh, natural process. It can't possibly be six days, literal days. You could be wrong. You could be wrong. And thus, you free yourself from Satan trying to make you think you know better than God how he works and you trying to put God into a box of how he works. I've always told people, and I kind of said it earlier, that all figurative language in the Bible, I believe, has a kernel of literal truth. I think there is something literal about the six-day creation. I do. And in fact, if you're a member of this church, they insist that you at least accept this. And I think it's compatible. I think what I'm saying here is compatible with first family's expectations. With that, we're off the hook and we can talk and love on the Bible and say, yes, this, now we can get past all this literal versus figurative stuff and I can get to the truth. What is the truth of what God's trying to tell me without the distractions? I'll stop there. Okay, let's talk about the book of Genesis. Uh, where did it come from? Uh, who wrote it and what does it contain? Well, you remember that I said that in the very beginning, God began to reveal himself directly to the very first human beings and this was Adam and Eve and their descendants. Well, he continued to reveal himself over time, Um, and those descendants of Adam and Eve, um, as we get to um, a man called Abraham and his descendants, we call the Jews or the Hebrews. This was a group of people who were special to God, and God used as kind of a, a conduit for his revelation and blessing to the rest of the world. Okay, Now, over time, much history happened. Adam and Eve were created at the beginning of the creation of the universe and the world. And then their descendants lived and died. And we get to people that you may be familiar with from the past, uh, like Noah um, and Abraham. Abraham, in fact, the father of the Jewish nation, a man who came from Ur, the city in southern Iraq, uh, modern day Iraq, who uh, migrated with his family uh, to the Um, the Near East that we call the uh, modern-day country of Israel, and that being the place that God promised Abraham and his descendants as a promised land, a land that God was going to give to those people to flourish and to prosper. Well, all of this took place, again, as God is revealing himself, and as people are starting to write some of this down. So we think that even... In the time of Abraham, who, which which might be, and again, I, I give dates in this class. Um, I, I like to tell people I try and give approximate dates for when scholars think these people lived. But of course, the further back in history you go, the more um, insecure those dates are because we just aren't really sure. So we'll, we'll just say for the sake of this class, around 2000 BC is the time when Abraham, the father of the Israelites, lived. Okay. And Abraham had a son, Isaac, and Isaac had a son, Jacob, and Jacob had, uh, you know, one of them being Joseph. And through these people, God revealed himself, and a great history of God's promises to the human race began to unfold. Now, all of that is happening, you know, many thousands of years ago. Well, as you remember, uh, hopefully, Joseph, um, one of the sons of Jacob, um, took residence in Egypt, and eventually the entire clan, uh, uh, Jacob's family, moves to Egypt um, to escape a terrible drought and terrible famine, and they and they take up residence in Egypt, and there they stay for over four hundred years. Okay, and this leads us to a time of great suffering for the Hebrew people, in which a leader was raised up out of the Hebrews, to deliver them from their Egyptian captors. And that person, of course, is Moses. Now, Moses is important, although he does not appear in the book of Genesis. He is very important to our story. Why? Because we think, through tradition, through scripture, and through revelation, that Moses was the first person to essentially compile and write and and create these books of history and of um, of knowledge of God that we call the Book of Genesis. We think that Moses is the one to finally kind of put all of those stories together that he was hearing verbally, the stories that he may have had scraps of writings about to put them all together into a collection, a book that we call the Book of Genesis. In fact. We think Moses was very prolific during his life and even had a, a huge part in writing much of the first five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So we think Genesis was primarily, you know, compiled, written by, by Moses. He was not the only one to write it. I think it's important in this class to understand that even books like Genesis that were probably primarily written many thousands of years ago, did undergo a little evolution over time. Uh, some editing, some additions, and, and again, we believe this is all supernatural and this is all legit. At some point, some of the names of places were changed. Um, you know, um, Some of the, the towns in Egypt that no one really knew 2,000 years later might have been changed to things like Pyramises. Um, we know that the city of Dan in northern Israel, that that had an original name that was changed to Dan. That's okay. And I think the reason they're doing that is, again, God, through his supernatural revelation, is saying, I'm going to make my word clear to you so that this generation understands it. But that doesn't change the inherent root meaning of what Genesis said in the in the first place. So we don't have to worry about that. Um Deuteronomy records uh, that you know uh, Moses died. Well, of course Moses didn't write about his own death, so we know that at some parts of the first five books, um, other people had a hand to play in that. But we think Moses wrote most of it. So, but what is Genesis? Well, another question you might ask is, well, where do these titles come from? In fact, uh, the the chapters, the verses, even the titles themselves were not part of the original documents that were written. Um, these were added later. In fact, uh, the, uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament that we call the Septuagint is the reason why we have names like Genesis, Exodus, so on. Uh, Genesis is Greek. It means birth or creation, origin. Um, Genesis is the Greek. Um, Exodus means a marching out. Exodus is the Greek there. And so these Greek names given to the Old Testament books have survived into the English versions of those that we, that we have today. Well, let's go ahead and let's jump right into reading the book of Genesis. Chapter 1, we will read uh, the entire chapter.
1: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, to separate the water from water. So God made the expanse, and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let, it dry, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with the seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in according to their kinds. And God saw it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness, and God said that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, to let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas. And let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves over the ground then god said i give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it they will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground everything that has breath of life in it i give every green plant for food and it was so god saw all that he had made And it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day.
0: So what can we take away from Genesis 1? Well, first, and probably the most obvious, God is powerful. He had the ability to create the entire universe, the entire earth, and even uh, the human race itself, simply through his creative word, We also see that God is very creative. He was responsible for designing and and delivering a vast multitude of amazing creatures, of planets, of stars, galaxies. It is obviously the work of an extremely creative mind. We see that God created the universe through his spoken word. And this, in Genesis, is really the only insight we get into how he created it. And and again, I like to point out that the language of Genesis 1 is perhaps the most simple and basic in the entire Bible. It's very basic, and I believe that is for a reason. So that God could very clearly communicate in the most simplest terms possible, I am God, I created the universe, how did I do it? That's complicated. Trust that for you to know it was through my spoken word and that was sufficient. That was sufficient. What else do we see? Well, we see that creation is a miracle. miracle in the sense that it is so wonderful. It's, it defies explanation, essentially, in human understanding how it happened. But it is a miracle. It came from nothing. Something came from nothing. We see how Genesis is going to be tied into later scripture. And if you're familiar with the Bible, uh, the Old and the New Testament, you will start to see patterns. In fact, uh, if you're a a reader of the Gospel of John, the very first sentence of the Gospel of John is, In the beginning was the Word, and, and the Word was God. We see that creation is complex, and there are patterns. We see... The account is deliberate. Again, getting back to this point of why does it say the earth was created in six days with a seventh day of rest? There seems to be a reason behind it. We must trust that this account is given for a reason why it happened in a certain order with certain groups. It was obviously written for humans to understand that gets back to the simple language. It was meant for anyone who hears this word to understand that God created the universe and us. And getting at us... Obviously, it shows that mankind is a special part of creation. There is something unique about man that has, it transcends the rest of creation. In fact, mankind has the features of our creator. No, nowhere else in Genesis does it say that creation has the image of God, except for mankind. So there is something very special about human beings. And how in towards the end of chapter 1, human beings are not just special, but they're blessed They're blessed because not only are they set above creation, but they're set to rule over it and enjoy it. Creation is meant to be ruled by mankind and enjoyed by mankind. And and most special of all, I think, the very end, God calls his creation every day good, but only on the sixth and final day of creation itself does God say his creation after the creation of man is very good. How wonderful is that? And we'll leave you today with this thought that you are special. You mean something to God. You were created deliberately, purposefully, with a wonderful sense of being and a purpose to commune with God, your creator, to understand his creation and your part in it. Okay, thank you for joining us. Um, We'll see you next week and pick up
1: Genesis chapter two. Thank you. (laughs)